welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing Spike Lee's new movie The Five Bloods, which follows a group of black Vietnam war veterans as they return to Vietnam to search for the remains of a fallen comrade and a secret buried treasure in the jungle. The film stars Delroy Lindo as Paul, a Trump supporter with PTSD, Jonathan Majors as his son David, Clark Peters as Otis, the group's former medic, and many more. This is a Spike Lee movie, so he can basically have whatever actor he wants. It's a great cast. Um, Acting is one of the kind of biggest strengths of this film. And uh, Morgan and I have a difference of opinion. This movie (laughs) is kind of largely getting very glowing reviews. Um, I think partly because people are starved for real cinema this year. Perhaps in a normal year it would get like positive but not overwhelmingly glowing reviews. But I liked this movie with a few criticisms. Morgan hated this movie with a lot of criticisms. (laughs) I mean, who would I be if not a contrarian? Because that's my role, as, as always, is to hate the thing that everyone else likes. It's exhausting, but I must speak my truth, which is that I thought this movie sucked. I should say that I have been having trouble focusing on things lately, I think partially due to still not being 100% physically well, and also just all I do is like read Twitter and stare at the news. So that has made it difficult for me to watch movies all in one go. Normally when I watch a movie at home, I like put my phone somewhere else and don't look at it and just watch it from start to finish. And I wasn't like checking my movie while my phone while watching this movie, but I did sort of pause it a couple of times, like make dinner and whatever, which is not the ideal um, set of circumstances to take in a movie. But I still think I would not have cared for it, even if I'd seen it in a theater, because I really was bothered by some things. And I saw this a few days ago, and you just finished it yesterday, I think. And uh, I just I've finished had it some today. Time to... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I have had time to stew on it, so I really like. <laughs> I also should say, so this obviously is a Vietnam War movie or about, you know, Vietnam War veterans. In any case, there are some flashbacks that take place during the war, although not a huge number. I love war movies, but Vietnam War movies are not a sort of genre that I am particularly versed in. I've seen Apocalypse Now. I saw it in college, which was like 10 years ago now, and I had wanted to watch it, to rewatch it before seeing this and then was just too distracted by stuff the past couple weeks. I did re-watch and rewatch some Spike Lee films, but I didn't have time to rewatch Apocalypse Now. But like, that is, the, I think the only Vietnam War film I've seen in its entirety, I could be missing something. I have seen bits of Platoon because my freshman year of high school, I had uh, a history teacher who went on maternity leave halfway through the year and Her replacement was a guy who was a substitute teacher at the school who was a Vietnam vet and was scary. And for our European history class, he taught us about the Vietnam War because he was fixated on that and showed us bits from Platoon and was like, this is what it was really like. And we were all 15 and I was like traumatized by this because it was horrifying and I have never seen Platoon because some part of my brain is still like I don't want to experience that again Uh, yeah so I feel like if you are someone who is interested in history as we both certainly are that there are certain parts of like things in history that just 
appeal to you on a sort of visceral level. Like, I love World War II. My grandparents were sort of early 20s in that period, and that was always appealing to me. I have no personal connection to the Vietnam War. My parents were really little at that point and, like, were not, you know, fighting. So this was always something that was, like, interesting to me in the abstract, but not something that I would sought out a lot of information about. So I'm not coming to this with, like, a huge wealth of personal knowledge or emotional sort of attachment, I guess I would say. I don't have, like, a veteran in the family. Yeah. Um, I obviously, as a British person, I'm not as kind of filled to the brim with Vietnam era, like Vietnam War pop culture, which is like such a key part of American war and also action movies. I have seen a few Vietnam War movies. And before this, while Morgan was watching several Spike Lee films this week, I watched Apocalypse Now for the first time and had my mind blown. I really didn't Google Apocalypse Now before watching it. I also didn't Google this movie either because I was like, well, I know I'm going to watch this movie and I know that I like Delroy Lindo. So <laughs> there was no point in finding out. And it's like I watched Apocalypse Now. I was just like, holy fucking shit. This is completely one of the greatest movies ever made. As everyone says, There, people are correct. And then I watched this movie and was like, pretty good movie. Could not be more different not really barely barely relevant as like a piece of homework i but um there are like obviously a couple of references in this movie spike lee is a filmmaker who likes to make his references known although not in a corny way like some other filmmakers i'm chill with the way he decided to uh kind of refer to stuff in this but the two most obvious ones apparently are apocalypse now which is very blatant and the treasure of sierra madre which i have not seen but is a kind of 1920s uh, treasure 1940s. 1940s 1940s treasure movie set in the 1920s and um yeah and this there's like a big scene where they're in a bar which is like an apocalypse now theme bar in vietnam which is an incredibly fucked up concept and uh clearly an appealing place to film uh <laughs> but um that is a real that's a real place yeah, I have seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I've only seen it once. It was a few years ago, and I wish I had seen it more recently to try to pick up on the more specific references. It's starring Humphrey Bogart um, in one of his more unappealing roles. He's amazing at it, but it was, I think there's a story where he has sort of been like, I want to play this guy, and he's like a sociopath. He's awful. And the studio was sort of like, well, should he be more sympathetic? And he was like, no. Like, I want to play this awful man. Like, I'm a big movie star now, and that's what I'm going to do. It's an incredible film. And it's all about kind of, like, greed and the sort of gold rush and uh, these people who are sort of destroy themselves because they can't get along and are too fixated on sort of having all the gold for themselves, right? And uh, with that in mind, like, people were talking about that as a reference. Watching this, I was like, oh, it totally makes sense that that's where this is coming from because they are looking for this sort of buried gold treasure that they have, they knew know was out there because it went down in this plane crash, you know, decades ago. And they're fixated on it in the movie in a way that you sort of realize as it goes on is not particularly productive, though obviously it would be very tempting to have millions and millions of dollars. But it's more of a sort of, uh, thematic illusion it seemed to me than like specific visual things although I may be missing something because I haven't seen it in a few years like the look of Treasure of Sierra Madre is very different from this because it's a sort of old Hollywood black and white type movie and this is obviously not that yes this is a very modern movie and it's very idiosyncratic in a lot of uh, fun ways that I think some people will just find a bit too much uh, one thing that Morgan and I were talking about beforehand is the fact that um 
whenever characters are subtitled, um, so Vietnamese characters and there's a French character, the subtitles are always in Spike Lee's signature style, which you will recognize if you follow him on social media, which is that he capitalizes every individual word. So it's like if you, depending on, if you're someone like me who reads that as like kind of semi-sarcastic uh, kind of emphasis, it's like a weird subtitling experience. But I'm just like, you know what? Sometimes people have a very specific idiosyncrasy and you just have to roll with it. <laughs> Whereas I, I knew exactly what was happening as soon as I saw it because I don't follow him on Twitter when I've seen his tweets. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> Why is this happening? It it's, was so It makes me want to, to read one of his scripts to see if he types all yes. of his scripts in that style too. I was like, <laughs> is this how he writes screenplays? Like what? I, I must know. Who knows? Maybe someone has asked this in a Spike Lee interview and we will discover that after uh, we have recorded. But um, yes. that's just like one of many kind of stylistic quirks this movie has. Um, the really noticeable one is the aspect ratio and regular ris- listeners may know that I love a gimmicky aspect ratio. This one, if anything, had even more aspect ratios than I could possibly have asked for. Um, but there's a really good post in Slate, which we will link to, which is kind of interviewing the cinematographer of this film and kind of talking about the vision that he and Spike Lee had for the different aspect ratios and kind of the, the main one is just sort of normal widescreen. I mean, I think it's the it basically looks like how you would expect a blockbuster film to look. And it's a good aspect ratio to have if you're doing lots of landscapes and also you have an ensemble cast because there's loads of scenes where it's four or five people all having a conversation in the same shot. But then when they do the flashbacks, it's in a like more boxy style, which is mirroring um, when television reporters were filming in Vietnam in the 70s because they were using like 16 millimeter film and it had to be turned over really fast. So all the footage from that period has this really like distinctive style and it's also quite grainy. I really loved the way they did the flashbacks because um, the concept, as we said earlier, is that there's these four veterans who are going back to Vietnam um, to retrieve the remains of their fifth, the fifth member of their group. But they're also retrieving this gold, which was being sent by plane by the CIA to pay a bunch of uh, Vietnamese people who were collaborating with the US. And in the flashbacks, the main cast are like playing themselves. And it's not like they're doing one of these performances where they're pretending to be really young. But it's really interesting way of filming these flashbacks that's like instead of recasting them or instead of doing the Irishman thing of like trying to de-age some genuinely old men, they're just like, no. And I I really liked that. I prefer that. I really dislike digital de-aging. But also I just thought it was a really smart choice in terms of the way the film is like about memory and the fact that the young character obviously does not ever grow as old as these guys. And it's just really interesting to see kind of the the like layers of their lives inside there. Um, I know that Morgan thought that Chadwick Boseman looks too old. Chadwick Boseman is a very youthful person for a man in his mid forties. Um, yeah, he is too old. He probably should be like 25 or something in this, but it's like, whatever. I will accept it because Chadwick Boseman is ex- extraordinary star power and clearly is like, we could get this really great guy to film for two weeks. So fuck it. <laughs> I mean, he's great. He is incredibly charismatic. But I liked the visuals of those flashbacks. The aspect ratio stuff, I didn't particularly care for, but I wasn't massively bothered. I was sort of just like, whatever. Like, it, it, I didn't feel strongly about it one way or the other. But I just didn't find the writing of those scenes to be good. So 
So that was sort of a problem for me. Um, and I think that the casting of Chadwick Boseman, like he does not look his age for sure. And they, I'm sure they put makeup on him to make him look younger. But the main actors in the movie are also like on the younger side of who could plausibly have been like with the, the dates that they're giving for when they were in Vietnam, like they would have to have all been like 17, 18. Right. And so he should be like 20 years old in those scenes. And if you're trying to actually capture like how awful this would have been, it's more affecting to me to have someone who's actually like 20 years old or like, you know, it's Hollywood. So say 25 to get it. Like, yeah, these were kids. Right. And Chadwick Boseman is just not that age. And so you don't get that feeling of like, these were like kids sent out into the jungle and like, which is something you get in apocalypse now. Because they have yes. Lawrence Fishburne when he was like 15 years old or something. And it's yeah. like, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> yes. I mean, so the, the big pitch of this movie, right, is that there has not been a big film about the experience of black combat soldiers in Vietnam, um, despite the fact that they made up a disproportionate number of those soldiers. I found a good uh, article in the New York Times from a couple of years ago that was just laying out a lot of kind of statistics and facts about those numbers that as someone who like obviously studied this stuff in school, but isn't like a Vietnam war buff, as I was just saying, it was helpful to me. And if maybe some people aren't Americans, especially it might be illuminating. So we'll link to that in the show notes, but the numbers change over the course of the war, like earlier in the first couple of years, it's really, really disproportionate. And then it gets slightly more, there's slightly more parody as it goes along. But in 1967, for instance, Black soldiers made up 16.3% of all draftees and 23% of all combat troops in Vietnam. And there's something, it's something like 11% of the population at that point are African-American. So that's obviously really off. And the big war, Vietnam War movies are stuff like Apocalypse Now, which does have some Black characters, but not a ton. And then like Platoon, which is not which is very white and various other things so and also kind of the stereotypical audience for american war films is skewing towards conservative patriotic white men yes witness like american sniper however many years ago that was now which i mean yeah yeah i should add neither of us have seen rambo which is also referenced in this movie because there's a scene where they kind of they talk about rambo and they talk about how hollywood basically tried to go back and win the war by making films about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be some interesting things written about the comparisons between this and Rambo because this is... It's like a weird combination of there's lots of very hard-hitting real-life politics and kind of footage of real people being killed, which we will talk about in a minute, and also some just sort of straightforward, like, here's a fun action scene. So, yeah. Yeah. And in theory... The idea of doing a movie about the experience of these black combat soldiers and veterans is appealing to me. Like that is a real experience that so many people had that just has not been processed through mainstream art, particularly at all. Interestingly, the script for this movie started out as a script about white veterans. It was written by uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. And then- Which is genuinely wild. I cannot imagine how much this was redrafted because <laughs> I mean, I guess the basic plot was kept and every other element was changed. (laughs) I would love to see a comparisons, but 
whims of Hollywood, right? It makes its way somehow to Spike Lee and Kevin Wilmot, who also was the co-writer of Black Klansman a couple years ago, and then Chirac, which was the previous feature, I believe, that um, Spike Lee directed. So they rewrite it. Spike Lee had also made, a decade plus ago, a movie called The Miracle of St. Anna, which is about black soldiers in World War II, which I have not seen. Uh, I think it was actually more like 15 years ago. It was received very, very poor reviews, and I think is still considered one of his uh, weaker efforts. But he literally made it because he got into like a feud with Clint Eastwood because Clint Eastwood <laughs> had made a couple of World War II movies in which there are no black soldiers, and uh, Spike Lee was really mad. And so then he made this movie about black soldiers in Italy, which unfortunately apparently is not very good. I will watch it at some point. But um, it's definitely not one he's... I'd heard of. Whereas there's a lot of Spike Lee movies that everyone is like, you must see this. So yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, I have not seen it, so I'm not, you know, what do I know? But it, the reviews were not good. But this is a area he's obviously, like, has interest in, right? Like, he's something that he's engaged with before, and he's now doing Vietnam. But I just think the movie really does not do a good job dealing with the ideas that it's sort of theoretically mining. I have two sort of levels of issues with this movie and there's the political stuff which we will get into in great detail and then also just like the aesthetic concerns right like I just don't think this is a very good movie the acting is very good everyone is talking specifically about Delroy Lindo who is great like I have no beef with any of that we both love the show The Good Fight which he has been a regular on for four seasons I think and he's just left but um he's amazing 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 on that show which nobody watches because it's on fucking cbs all access yeah, but so just it's like fyi it's one of the forest. best shows currently on air in america so it's great and it's sort of one of those things where like nobody's given him movie roles right and then spike lee gives him a big movie role and everyone's like oh my god he's amazing so i thought he was fantastic i thought the other like the other actors are good jonathan majors who plays his son was in um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco last year, which I think I mentioned on the podcast at some point. I loved that movie so much. And he is just like a movie star. He is so charismatic. He's so talented. Like, the people on the screen are doing a good job with what they've been given. But I just think the script is not good. (laughs) Like, the dialogue, I kept thinking watching it, like, I bet this reads really badly on the page. And the actors are so good, that they kind of save a lot of it. But a lot of what they're saying is just, like, not how people talk. And not in a, like, heightened dramatic way. Like, that's fine. Obviously, people don't talk the way they do in, like, a Wes Anderson movie, right? Like, that would be an absurd criticism to make of an extra stylized movie. But that's not what I mean. Like, this, it's just that there's obvious stuff. Like, so Paul, the Delroy Lindo character, is a Trump supporter. And... He literally just kind of like throws it in conversation right at the beginning because they need him to talk about that so that the audience knows. But the effort isn't made to have it come up in like an organic way. And there's a moment also where like he was the one who was with, I can't remember the Chadwick Boseman's character's name when he died. Norman. And he's like, yes. And he's explaining this to Clark Peters. As though Clark Peters, who was his war buddy from 50 years ago, wouldn't know that he was with Norm when he died. And I was like, oh, duh. Like, hello. We, like, but they need the audience to know this stuff. And so there's lots of this kind of like clunky dialogue in a way that I found really frustrating because it just 
deadened it for me. I was just like, this is not, again, this is not how people talk. And the whole, like, I think you responded better to the relationships between the main characters. Like, the Paul character, they clearly spent so much time trying to figure out his issues. I still think they're not that well-developed, frankly. But some of the other, the two other guys in the crew, especially, who were not him or Clark Peters, who has this whole thing with a ex-girlfriend, which we'll get into in a second. I was like, who are these people? Like, what are their personalities? What is driving them? Like, you barely get any sense of those people. And it just felt like they had not put enough effort into actually crafting the thing and that it was all kind of shoddy. And it was really, really frustrating to me because there's like potential material there, right? And it just was sloppy. And that's not even getting into the specific Vietnam stuff, which we will save until I have given you time to rebut my (laughs) complaints because I have so much more to say on that. But I will pause for a moment. Well, I have no well-reasoned rebuttals for your comments in the script because this simply wasn't something that I took issue with in the film. It could possibly just be because I was like so invested in the characters and the performances of like a handful of lead actors that I just like didn't notice. But specifically in terms of Paul being a Trump supporter, I thought that was one of the most interesting and kind of engaging elements of the film. I loved his whole character and I actually did think that he was incredibly well conceived and obviously there is like a stereotype of what types of people are Trump supporters but yeah like there are black Trump supporters almost certainly a lot less now than there were in 2016 but um, there was like a really great paragraph in one of the reviews I read after watching this movie by K. Austin Collins in Vanity Fair. So he says um Paul is a black Trump voter, a veteran whose persistent anger over what America owes him, whose extraordinary xenophobia have rendered him into what many of us probably think is a walking paradox. Yet I know this man I am related to, practically grew up with, a black Vietnam veteran whose traumas have resulted in precisely this, a pervading anger in search of a target, a hatred for the world born of having been thrown to the wolves by a country that still has yet to consider him one of its countrymen. So kind of the the origin of like all of this character's deepest trauma is his relationship with Norman, the Chadwick Boseman character, who was a political radical like the other guys. The implication is that basically they were just like normal young guys who'd been conscripted and Storm and Norman was very well informed. He kind of taught them about black history. He was more of a pacifist. There was a point where they were like, we're so mad about the death of Dr. Martin Luther King that they just wanted to go and kill some people and he kind of talked them down. That's like one of the key flashback scenes. And it's interesting because it's like, it's quite hard to tell back then to what extent Paul was sort of agreeing with him in that and to what extent he was just like adored this guy because they were so close and they all needed a leader and a mentor. And this guy was so charismatic and genuinely cared for them in a world where no one else was caring for them, particularly the US government. But kind of over the decades, this calcified into a position where he's obsessed with this man who died. But at the same time, he doesn't have any particular attachment to his ideals. Whereas one of the other guys who wound up being much richer in his old age, like he had a much more privileged life, is far more invested in when they find the treasure, using that treasure uh, to like donate to various kind of Black Lives Matter type causes. Yeah, I just thought that like Paul's politics were a really kind of welcome and unusual angle that you do not see in other films, partly because most American filmmakers are white and they either don't 
kind of understand how someone could come to that viewpoint from like a complex series of like lifelong factors or because they might consider that to be a possibility and are like, well, I don't want to offend anyone by doing this wrong, which is correct because they probably would do it wrong. And I think kind of the combination of Delroy Lindo being a very layered performer who can just have this really wide range of emotion in this movie and Spike Lee being someone who's worked with him a lot and presumably knowing people who have had this kind of experience, it's like they've got this perfect combination of factors to end up with this really great character. And yeah, like the supporting three friends are not as complex. I think obviously like the key relationships are between Paul and his son and between Paul and Norman. But in like an ensemble movie where this is like an entertainment movie, right? I feel like for the tone of of it being an entertainment movie, I didn't feel like the characterization on the other two guys was too thin. I felt like I got what I needed to understand their relationships. And kind of the the main core of this movie is how close these four guys are. Yeah, it definitely differed from other depictions I've seen of kind of American war veterans. I know that like kind of like traumatized Vietnam War veterans are definitely something you see a lot in like American media because it was such a widespread issue. And kind of the the obvious images for that are like people who have such severe PTSD that they basically can't really function anymore and are really traumatized and have loads of mental health problems and people who like have close relationships with men they went to war with but really can't can't express that and they're also overwhelmingly white and I feel like there is this particular image of like angry repressed white traumatized men who came back from war uh, with insurmountable problems and in this it's both kind of offering the perspective of black veterans and it's also kind of showing how their politics and their community as a group of black men with no kind of white people in that group, that led to them forming this especially close bond and they actually are really supportive of each other. And at the beginning of the film, you do kind of get the impression that they're not necessarily super in touch with each other all the time. But once they get into the jungle, they're actually they're showing kind of a lot of emotional intelligence like towards each other. There's loads of situations where they get ramped up into these quite serious conflicts. Like quite early on in the film, Paul realizes that one of the other characters has a gun, that sort of thing. And they all kind of know how to talk each other down and they all know know how to talk about their feelings. And there's a lot of crying in this movie and a lot of emotional sensitivity. And I really enjoyed that, like just as a film that was about like older straight men and kind of the way that that relationship is very much founded in sort of the fact that they were mentored by this person who was giving them the sense of sort of political activism and like black community and that kind of thing. So yeah, I just I just really felt the main relationships much more strongly than you, I think. I do not know that I would describe Paul as someone who is very good at talking about his feelings. No, no, not at all. All the, the others are, <laughs> but it's more like they're managing him. And he has like really massive mood swings is the way they're kind of depicting that. And he is also a terrible father, but in quite an interesting way, because I mean, I think this is something that's going to be talked about a lot because his performance is obviously like the most catchy part of this movie. But you have this interesting position where you've got this incredibly charismatic actor. And like, it's one of those characters where you see him treat his son like absolute shit, like in a completely obvious and explicit way. And you can tell that his son is quite fucked up about this. Like there's a point towards the end where he explains that he thinks his father hates him because his mother died in childbirth. And it's like, kid, that's only the beginning of the problems here. (laughs) Um, But also like he will then do something where you're like, oh, he's actually like a great person. And it's like, he's not though. Like, and you can tell how 
if anything, like Jonathan Major's character, David, his son, that kid should be more fucked up. Because if he's had to deal with this guy raising him with this level of like mood swings all the time. I mean, I think it comes down to, I think you bought the flashbacks way more than I did. I think that because I was just like, what the fuck is this? And I think Chadwick Boseman is super compelling in them. But the political message that he's giving them is really muddled to me. And he's not on screen very much, which is okay. But it all it all seemed to come to be sort of like Sound of Fury leading to not so much. And he, I mean, we're kind of just going to spoil this movie because it's on Netflix and you can watch it. And it's hard to talk about it without talking about the ending, which we definitely have to um, in a little bit. But so you find out that Paul accidentally killed Norman because he like someone came into the sort of plane where they were hiding and he turned around and shot both this Vietnamese person and uh, Norman. And he like has a vision of him at the end and Norman forgives him. He's very explicitly characterized as a Christ figure throughout this film. And I was like, okay, well that's fine. But it is so centers the whole narrative around them and their experience and not the Vietnamese people, which is the biggest problem with the movie, right? Is that it's not taking the Vietnamese experience particularly into its worldview at all. And the number of critics I've seen being like, this is the moment, this is the movie for right now. It's giving us this message, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I just don't really feel like there's like, what is the message of this movie? I don't, I mean, like, who am I to pontificate about this? Like, I am willing to read reviews and listen. A lot of people saying that have also been white critics. And I just don't feel like that the ideas in this have been worked out in a way that feels particularly salient to me. And that that sort of bleeds into the sort of interpersonal stuff in the movie also. And then that didn't make as much sense to me because it all is connected and none of it felt totally worked out. I mean, there's a hell of a lot happening in this movie. It's very, very busy you've got this combination of a straightforward drama which is like very much sort of in the like just mainstream accessible like entertainment drama with a kind of familiar type of structure but also you've got basically historical lectures in a kind of montage style so you've got various points where you know they stop and they'll give you uh just like a still photograph of a historical figure and talk about this and it'll be kind of interspersing people's conversations like you've got a footnote um which is quite interesting it felt very much like it was kind of cramming for a history exam. And over the past few years, there's definitely been like a lot more films that are about black history, particularly by black filmmakers in America. And this kind of reminded me a bit of Watchmen actually, which is by a white showrunner, but has a diverse writer's room. And one of the key goals of Watchmen was to educate people about history that had been erased in America. And that's kind of part of this film's goal as well. And both of those, like, part of the experience of the film is that they want people to just go and Google things that have been referenced in the movie because it's like that is a failing of the education system. So you've got that happening at the same time as the drama and you've also got these sort of, like, interesting stylistic quirks. And then also it's trying to be, like, commentary on the Vietnam War because how could it not be? And like Morgan said, there's kind of issues with sort of like the way it uses the Vietnamese perspective because there were parts where I was like this is really good because like the subject matter of the film automatically means that it is a critique on American imperialism and kind of the use of the of the American army and like quite early on they have a character clarifying that the 
war was referred to as the American War. And they also have a flashback scene where you basically have like the positions flipped for a really commonly used uh, war film cliche, which is a bunch of characters kind of talking about when I get home, I'm going to see my girlfriend. And, and like, but it's Vietnamese characters, you're seeing their dialogue in uh, the subtitles and they're kind of talking about when they bid farewell to their wives and stuff. And they're you're like, oh yeah, these are just like normal guys and they're really romantic and they're kind of talking about love poems. And then the protagonists of the film just mow them down and it's really upsetting. That's the, op- the opposite of the usual cliche where you see some character that you've become invested in from your perspective get killed by the enemy. But at the same time, while the film like does make that effort to not try and like heroize the concept of the Vietnam War and the concept of the American government, there's also some pretty bad roles for Vietnamese characters. And I think in particular, like one character that Morgan and I both had a big issue with was one of Paul's friends uh, had a love affair with a Vietnamese sex worker when he was at war. And when he reunites with her in this movie, she's now quite wealthy and she has a daughter who is clearly his daughter. And they reunite for this very kind of bare bones scene where her role is basically to show up, be attractive, reveal that she has a daughter. They meet for like one second and then he leaves. And she is the sort of, uh, is the person who's facilitating them selling the gold once they find the gold. So like she does have a purpose in the plot. But in terms of like her relationship to this guy and her backstory and the way she's portrayed, it's very shallow. And the roles for women in general in this movie are not good. I mean, that is a problem that Spike Lee has in all of the movies of his that I have seen. It's consistent from the beginning of his career. Or, if not necessarily shallow, then sort of flawed. It shows up at different levels in the different movies. Like, the, I like the women and Do the Right Thing just fine. It makes sense that they're the best in that movie of the ones that I've seen, because that is obviously his best film. But even then, like, they're definitely not the focus of the film, right? And then in the worst cases, they're bad. And in this case, it was comically stereotypical, this woman. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You know? I mean, you found you found a good review from the Daily Beast that sort of summarized it really well, I think. Uh, so it's by Cassie DaCosta, um, who reviewed this film, and uh, she says, this character who's the, the, the ex-girlfriend is cast as a racist caricature, the wily, exotic Asian femme who sensually and discreetly gets her way. Her daughter, Michonne, is clearly mixed, her father an unidentified black man. Unfortunately, instead of examining her experience, Michonne is rendered as a docile, tragic mulatto caricature. And the Black Vet's guide, Vin, is cast as the token cultural informant toggling between opposing Vietnamese communities, the communism of the North and the pro-US anti-communism of the South, as well as the US-Vietnam divide. So that's kind of her her main criticism of kind of the two main Vietnamese characters. Kind of towards the end, they end up in a gunfight with some, uh, basically, it seems like they're like a gang, but they're also descendants of people who fought with the Viet Cong. But... um, yeah, the girlfriend character was not was not great. She was particularly egregious, but the whole range of Vietnamese characters in the movie, such as they are, which is not a very big range, I thought it was just like a huge, huge problem. You are correct that there are a few moments in the movie where there's sort of a critique of the war going on. That scene with the soldiers where you hear, you see the subtitles of them talking about their girlfriends, I thought was really affecting. And... There are a couple scenes where you have Vietnamese people directly saying to the main characters, 
basically it was your war too. But that's a very small percentage of the movie. And like, I liked those moments, but they're definitely not the main thrust of the film. And the movie really heroizes its central characters. Yes, they were soldiers in this bad war, but like, they were exploited too, so they're fine. And this is the problem with this whole narrative, right? I mean, the real genuine, like, difficult problem is that they were being sent off on this, like, horrible war and being exploited by their own country, which in which they were being mistreated too. It is a genuine, like, I mean, it's a horrible thing to experience, right? I can't possibly conceive of what that experience must have been like. But that doesn't mean that once they get there, they're not also participating in this imperialist, colonialist action. And the horrific, horrific things that happened in Vietnam, it's not like only the white soldiers were participating in those things. Like, everyone was doing it, and this is the horror of the situation. There was another great review on the AV Club, written by Ashley Ray Harris, that we'll link to. I mean, we'll link to all this stuff, obviously, but I really recommend this one. I thought it was great. She writes, Five Bloods ignores more difficult subject matter to instead celebrate patriotic Black moments in U.S. war history. At one point, Otis remarks that it's unfair Black Vietnam veterans were called baby killers when they returned home while veterans from previous wars were celebrated. Later, Lee shows a montage of the atrocities committed at the Hue Massacre as the men admit they were there. It's odd that Lee is willing to use images of murdered children, but refuses to have any of the men engage in meaningful discussion around their role in that violence. It's even more confusing when Lee uses a quick photo and history lesson on Crispus Attucks, who is a very famous sort of heroic figure in the Revolutionary War who was Black, to suggest that the Bloods are heroes of equal stature. And I think this is, like, to me, this is the massive failure of this movie and why I was so angry about it and, like, stewing over this for days, is that it's sort of redoing the failures of so many of these white Vietnam narratives, right? Which is, there's some acknowledgement that it was bad. And, like, Platoon, which I have only seen parts of in my U.S. history class, is definitely not a movie that's like, the Vietnam War was great. Like, that I mean, is not Apocalypse what Now was like, when I watched Apocalypse about. Now, I was just like, this is proof that art makes no difference to anyone. Because I'm going to go ahead and assume that, like, every middle-aged white man in America has seen Apocalypse Now, and they still seem to be making wars. <laughs> but uh, that, that whole film is like, this is the worst thing that humans have ever done. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I have seen it, and it is indeed one of the best movies ever made, and it's just like this horrible, horrible thing, right? But... It's all from the perspective of the Americans, even those great, that great film. And then the worst ones like Rambo, which obviously I haven't seen, but like a different tone to that sort of approach. And this just, it just is not specific enough to me to justify what it's doing. I was sort of trying to find stuff written by Vietnamese or Vietnamese American people. Um, I know there are a couple articles that are sort of in the works. They haven't been posted yet. Um, if stuff is up by the time we post this podcast, we'll link to it and tweet it, whatever. But there's a, the author Viet Tan Nguyen, who wrote The Sympathizer, which is a novel that won the Pulitzer Prize like five years ago or so, and who's also an academic who writes about this stuff in general. And so he, he wrote an article about Watchmen, um, actually, and the sort of issues it had with depicting Vietnam was tweeting about this. He hasn't watched it yet. He's watching it tonight and is going to live tweet it. And I was like, God damn it, we're recording like too soon. But um, he was saying on Twitter that like the Vietnamese reaction he had heard was tending negative, which is not surprising to me. 
But I've had his book, The Sympathizer, on my shelf for years and hadn't read it. And so I am in the middle of reading like five different things right now. But I was so aggravated by this movie that I immediately took this book off the shelf and started reading it. And I don't want to say too much about it because that's obviously not the focus of this episode. And I'm like a quarter of the way through. So, you know, I can't make complete statements. But within like 20 pages, I was like, oh, this book, which is from the perspective of this um, guy who works for the military in South Vietnam, but is a spy for the communists in the North and winds up moving to America after the end of the war, is so granularly detailed about that whole situation and about Vietnam, although they, he leaves Vietnam pretty quickly at the, after the beginning of the book. And like Viet Thanh Nguyen left Vietnam as a refugee when he was four. So it's not like he's writing all of this from memory, right? Like he did all of his research to make sure that everything was accurate. But, and it's a book, so it's different from a movie, but like you can do the research to get the details right. And like the perspective obviously is different because he's writing from the Vietnamese perspective. But it just made me feel like this movie, that like all the granular details of the stuff that people actually experience in this war is absent. Like it just feels like an adventure story, right? And to me, that's just not an ethically acceptable thing. Like it's this is not something that you can just make like a fun movie about. This was a horrible, horrible experience for this entire country that was like destroyed, right? And your mileage may vary on that, but like I just can't wrap my mind around that. That's not something I could could do. And that was where I just sort of the movie just lost me. I was like, this is not this is just not acceptable. Like no. And it ends with these, like, Tarantino-esque violence. Like, ugh. I mean, I just remember the last movie I watched, which was connected to the Vietnam War, which was... I mean, it was set during what was implied to be the near future, because it was sort of a dystopian, cyberpunky kind of situation. But it was basically the present day, and it was about a bunch of Vietnam War vets who were, like, defending a bar from an evil gang. And that was full bad Tarantino. Very, like, conservative. Very much sort of, like these guys' superpowers that they have PTSD that allows them to be incredibly violent. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? But yeah, and after watching this film, kind of the first thing I did was Google what Vietnam War movies I can watch next that were made by Vietnamese filmmakers. Because yes. <laughs> I, I, was, I was like, hmm, I've just realized that for some reason all of these movies seem to be American. And obviously America is like the dominant film culture, but I don't feel like there is much sort of cultural exchange even as someone who has not watched very many very many Vietnam War movies, it does not seem like there is much cultural exchange from like the two opposing sides here referencing each other. You know, like this, obviously Spike Lee is like incredibly American and is making lots of references to American movies. But um, the films that I came up with um, after some swift Googling for films that we could watch next, When the Tenth Month Comes, The Little Girl of Hanoi and Journey from the Fall are three really kind of acclaimed Vietnamese movies which are either kind of about the war or about the aftermath of the war. And two of those focus on women. Uh, They're not really about the experience of battle, which is very much the way American movies are focused. They're more about kind of the aftermath and living in a country that is at war in a kind of long-term way. I would be interested to see that perspective kind of instead, considering the fact that like American movies seem to focus either on the concept of sort of heroic, tragic action movies or films that are critical, obviously, because the Vietnam War was incredibly unpopular, but also are very much focused on kind of battlefield trauma. Yes. And obviously, as I said earlier, this is an experience that people had. 
right? So many young American men served in Vietnam and were completely fucked up by it forever. Yeah, I mean, the lead actor of this movie is like five years younger than people who were at war. The director is 10 years younger than people who were at war. So they are probably have family members who were in Vietnam. And, and like the black soldiers who had this experience, like their story has not been told. So it's not that... And like, there's a reason that there were so many Vietnam War movies made in Hollywood. It's because these people, like, like the country at large was totally fucked up by it. But that doesn't mean that as artists, it's not your job to examine what you're peddling and to sort of try to decenter yourself slightly in a story that's about your country imposing itself in this brutal way on these other people. And I remember when The Sympathizer came out, this this novel I was referencing, it was was a huge deal because it was a novel written in English that it was about the Vietnam War from that other perspective. And everyone was like, oh my God, because it really is not something that we get here at all. Like it just has not been a narrative that has been told particularly. I mean, I'm sure there, obviously there is stuff that you can seek out, but in terms of like mainstream stories, they really don't exist. And that colors the way that we think about that conflict, when we really need to change the way that we do that, right? It's, this was a bad, bad thing we did. And even if we think like, oh, the Vietnam War, that was such a fuck up, it was a quagmire, like we should have done it. That's, it's still from the perspective of like, we made a mistake, it was so, so bad for us, our soldiers got traumatized, as opposed to we murdered, raped, brutalized all of these people for a decade plus. And I think that this movie just doesn't think about that enough. And that was really frustrating to me because obviously Spike Lee is a genius and is so smart about so many things. There was one tweet I wanted to read um, from Stacey E. Singleton, who was replying to the critic Soraya Nadia McDonald, who was tweeting about this. And I just thought she said it really well. They're talking about, you know, this movie and the sort of flaws. And this woman says, it's the same problem with Chappelle. Their talent is so titanic in expressing one set of ideas that it makes their deficits in handling other ideas and topics, namely gender, that much more glaringly obvious and kind of painful at times. Which to me feels really right. Like, Spike Lee's grasp of blackness in America is so acute and powerful. And then other stuff like gender and obviously this sort of imperialism here, he, he just doesn't get it in the same way. And like, we can't all get everything, obviously, but... You want him to I mean, because this you reminds want to do the right me, thing, and it's like, oh, like this exact problem reminds me of of Christopher Nolan, who is a very different type of storyteller, a very different type of filmmaker, but it's the same problem, which is that he can spend like five years working on the most incredible technical masterpiece, and he's like forgotten to Google what is a woman. You know, it's like he made like he made like seven movies before he figured out how to do a human female character who like seems like a person. You know. And, you know, people got their blind spots. And uh, when the people are men, the blind spot is often very obvious. <laughs> um, and that was very apparent here. I will be, however, I am going to watch Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X uh, based on the recommendations of everyone. Um, I have obviously seen a few other Spike Lee movies and I do not recall having issues with sexism in those. But when you've made 40 films, you know, there's going to be some variety. <laughs> Yeah, I will say, so I was re-watching, or watching some that I hadn't seen, and I watched She's Gotta Have It and School Days, which are both on Netflix, which I 
like liked and thought were interesting, but had some issues with their his first two movies. So you can kind of tell that you know he's early on in the career, right? He's super talented, and they're good, but they're not masterpieces. And then Do the Right Thing is only his third movie, which is completely insane. Like that is just so bananas. It's like one of the you know ten best movies ever made. It's movie number three, and that I don't think is streaming for free anywhere in America. But like, shut out your four dollars. It's fine. And then Malcolm X is also on Netflix in America right now, and it's three and a half hours long. I watched it over two sittings and was wrapped the entire time. It is absolutely incredible. It's really, really good. It is worth the runtime. It earns it. I watched that, and then in the evening watched this, and that was not a great sequence to watch these things in, right? Because I watched Malcolm X, which was this, like, towering masterpiece, and then watched this movie and was like, I do not like that. <laughs> but it was it sort of suffered from the comparison because it just couldn't live up to it. But um, yeah, I would certainly recommend uh, Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X if you haven't seen them, particularly of the films of his that I've seen. I think those are the two best ones. But I mean, he's just made so many movies. There's still a lot that I haven't watched. So yeah, do we have any final final words? Yeah, um, my final thing to say about this movie is that the music is extremely distinctive. Before I watched the film, I saw someone say something like, oh, Marvin Gaye deserves like a directorial credit on this. And Marvin Gaye is extremely prominent in this film. The actual score of the film is by Spike Lee's longtime collaborator, Terence Blanchard, who does loads of his movies. Um, he did the soundtrack to uh, Black Klansman, which I, I'm pretty sure we spoke about when it came out a couple of years ago, but I don't think we did a whole episode. But um, they have very similar sounding soundtracks. But um, Marvin Gaye on this uh in this movie i think most of the songs if not all the songs they use are from what's going on which is one of his best albums it is extremely relevant to the film so like marvin gay obviously huge star um he spent a lot there was a long period where he was just straightforwardly kind of like a pop motown crooner and he had a really big female fan base and kind of you know you have like romance music and then this album he made this after his brother had gone to Vietnam, after he had begun to struggle with drug problems, I believe he'd attempted suicide by this point, although it may have been slightly before. Uh, but this album was, it's a concept album, which is about a soldier returning from the Vietnam War. It's very political. It kind of touches on a lot of the themes that we see in the film. And yeah, it's just like a really great choice of music to kind of fit with the themes of the film. And it was interesting to kind of watch this so soon after watching Apocalypse Now, which also has extremely distinctive music. Um, obviously, this one kind of references the Ride of the Valkyrie scene, but like in terms of the contemporary music that that movie included as a film that was made in the 70s, it was kind of interesting to see like, here's the music that like white people are associating with this period. And here's the music that black people are associating with this period. And how there's like, never the twain did meet yes. <laughs> in terms of the music that was used in this film and the music that was used in that film. Great Marvin Gaye album. If you have only heard like a few of his famed hits, it's a really, it's like a really interesting, interesting, good album. Um, and also like kind of as I was like, One of my other favorite Marvin Gaye moments is actually in Captain America 2, which could not be more fucking... I was like, fucking... is she going to get the Captain America I'm reference gonna, it's gonna, It's going to be in here, but it's like, it's all, it's like actively almost insulting because it's one of the best, like, as we may have mentioned before, the music in the Marvel franchise appalling. And this is a really great musical cue. It's like the, 
Sam Wilson, Captain America's black friend, is like, would you like to listen to Marvin Gaye? Um, and it's like a song from the Trouble Man soundtrack, but they use it in like a montage that includes like Captain America's girlfriend joining the CIA as like a happy ending. And it's like, I don't think Marvin Gaye would approve. <laughs> Great song though. Um, but yeah, really, really fantastic music in this. Um, I don't really know enough about Terence Blanchard to have a particularly strong opinion, but I think that his score in this was just like, whatever. I didn't feel strongly about that part. I mean, just to kind of finish off, I think part of the reason also why I liked this film a lot more than Morgan is because I love historical drama that sort of illustrates the relationship between the present and the past in a really kind of visceral, obvious way, because obviously most historical dramas are set in the past and there is no kind of sense of the present and the kind of the connections towards what happened in those events compared to now. And that is something that Spike Lee is doing in perhaps the most wildly blatant way you can possibly make, (laughs) both in terms of like having these characters go to flashbacks and flash forwards and also connecting past political events to at the end of the film the Black Lives Matter movement because that's where some some of the gold money is donated but it's just something that I think about basically on a daily basis like kind of the relationship between historical events and the present and all that kind of thing as I'm sure we are all at the moment thinking about quite a lot and it's quite rare to see that executed in any kind of effective way because historical movies specifically are so often just kind of following biopic guidelines or being set in a static event so um yeah I really engaged with that and it kind of really I felt like I I was absorbing it even though I did share many of the same criticisms Morgan had yeah um my last recommendation which I mentioned earlier the last black man in San Francisco is streaming for free on Amazon right now I believe and even if it's not you should rent it anyway which I watched immediately upon finishing this because I was like I need Arch to like (laughs) soothe me I am watching that ASAP because I missed it when it was out in the UK for one and a half seconds um, and everyone raves about how fucking good that movie is. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's not a perfect film, but it's really, really good. And um, Jonathan Majors, again, who's in this movie, we didn't talk about very much, but uh, he's just, he's going to be in a lot of stuff, I think. I certainly hope. He's in an HBO show later this summer, um, Jordan Peele's new show. And he's just, he's incredible. Uh, and that has great music also, as it happens, that movie. So um, so we will link to lots of stuff in the show notes for this that you should read, think about. Thank you all, as ever, for listening. Next week, we will be watching The Handmaiden. <gasps> oh my god, I forgot. I'm so excited. I've not seen The Handmaiden. I haven't either, and that was another one that um, that came out when I was at Oxford doing my master's, and it similarly was in the theater for, like, one week, and then was gone. And obviously it's been streaming for, you know, years, but it's just, I've never gotten around to it. A lovely patron has, you know, requested it, and it seemed like a good way to end Pride Month was to do that movie. So I'm really excited. I'm sure it's streaming everywhere, so if you have not watched it or want to watch it again... Uh, that is a very beloved film by many people, so I'm really looking forward to catching up with it finally. Yeah, iconic lesbian romance movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from South Korea. Yeah, so do your homework, watch that this week, and we will be back next week with an episode discussing that. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. 
The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is on overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.